Amen, church. You can go and grab your Bibles, if you would, and open up with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Um, those of you who have been here on Sunday nights know that for the last couple weeks, uh, we have been working through uh, a series of questions on Sunday nights. We've been doing a sort of Q&A in the church with questions that have been submitted by our church family. And one of the questions that, that we dealt with a few weeks ago was a question about the doctrine of the Trinity. Doctrine of the Trinity is, of course, a huge doctrine, uh, a heady doctrine, but also an essential doctrine because the doctrine of the Trinity is telling us something essential about the nature of God. It is telling us that, that God is triune. Within the one being of God, there are three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And one of the things the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us of about God is that that God is intrinsically relational because the three persons of the Trinity, Father, and so, Father, Son, and Spirit, have been in perfect, joyful, harmonious fellowship with one another from all of eternity past. This is Jesus in John 17 where he says that, that he had been sharing glory with the Father and sharing love with the Father from before the world began. God is intrinsically relational. Well, one of the other things the Bible tells us is that we are made in the image of God, right? That's repeated in Genesis 1 over and over, is that God made man in his own image. So think about it. Lots of things are tied up in being image bearers of God. But one of the things tied up in being image bearers is we're made in the image of a God who is intrinsically relational. And what that means for us is we are also intrinsically relational. We're made in the image of, God, of a God who has never not been in relationship. And so in that image, we're made with uh, a capacity for relationships, and we're made with a hunger for relationships. So we long to communicate. We long to know others and to be known by others. And of course... That, that reaches its apex in that now through Jesus, we can have a relationship with our Creator. That's the apex of this relational nature. We can know God. We can relate to God. We can have a vertical relationship with the God who created us and everything that exists. But also part of this relational nature is that we can have and we long for horizontal relationships. We hunger for friendship. We long for family. We join teams and, and we join clubs. And of course, once you, once you come to know Christ, once your life is reoriented toward Jesus, that new relationship with Jesus reorients everything else in your life, including your relationships. Now let me back up. R remember, the theme of the book of Colossians is that Jesus is the focal point of everything. Because everything was made by Jesus and everything was made for Jesus. So that Jesus is the preeminent one over all of creation. So he's the only one who has the power to bring us to life. The only one who has the power to forgive us of our sins. So salvation is all about Jesus, knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus. And now the Christian life is all about uh, walking with Jesus, depending on Jesus, Becoming more like Jesus. Well, one of the things that Paul is emphasizing as we move into Colossians 3 is he wants us to come to grips with the fact 
that our new relationship with Jesus as the preeminent one, as the head of all things, it gives a new shape and a new focus to everything else in our lives, including our relationships. So Paul's going to go on in Colossians 3 to say that, that our relationship with Jesus now, it, it redirects our marriages and it, it repurposes our parenting. And it even reshapes how we think in the workplace. Our relationship with Jesus affects how we treat our boss. Or it affects how we treat our employees. And Paul is going to tell us that our new relationship with Jesus has created a brand new series of relationships. Now follow with me now. I just mentioned home life and work life. But you had all of that before you were saved. You had family, you had friends, you had a job before you were saved. Jesus reshapes that and he repurposes all that. But what Paul's saying right now is, your relationship with Jesus has also created a brand new set of relationships. Because when God saved you, he brought you into a brand new family. So that you have a new set of brothers and sisters. And how we act, and by the way, this new set of brothers and sisters, it gets played out most clearly in the life of the local church. And Paul wants us to see that how we relate to each other in this family, our attitudes toward each other in this family, has a massive impact on our witness to the world, and it has a massive impact on our own spiritual growth. And so we just looked at a series of verses last week where Paul defines what our relationships should look like within the body of Christ. The sorts of attitudes we should put off, put off anger and malice and wrath. And the sorts of attitudes that we should put on, Paul says that we should put on kindness. And we should put on compassion. And we should put on humility. Paul says that, that we have to bear with one another and we have to forgive one another. So, so there's now certain attitudes and behaviors we have within the family of God. Well, as we get into the next couple verses in Colossians 3, Paul's going to give us some of the defining principles within the family of God. Okay, so if you're in Colossians 3, we're still talking about how our new relationship with Jesus reorders our relationship life, including our life among each other as the family of God. So Colossians 3, we went down through verse 14 last week, so we're going to pick up in verse 15, and we're just going to read three verses together. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Okay, we're going to look at this under three headings. You might call it three uh, principles or three priorities of our life together as God's people. Three principles of our life together as God's people. Here's the first thing. Number one, let peace rule. Let peace rule. Look at verse 15 again. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, this, this is one of those verses that is regularly taken out of context. And it's, it's translated to be a verse about the will of God, 
Verse 15 is, is telling you how to know God's will. So the key in knowing God's will, you're told, is you just have to let the peace of God rule. So if you feel peace about something, you should do it. And if you don't feel peace about something, you shouldn't do it. Let the peace of God rule, and that's how you, you make decisions. But that's not what this verse is about. You'll notice this verse is not mainly about, it's not mainly about personal peace because this is a peace, Paul says, that is related to us being one body. So it's a peace that rules in our hearts that has to do with our body life together. In fact, Paul says we have been called into one body. That's, that's salvation language. He's talking about the effectual call of God that saved you. You, you were dead in your sins when God called you to life. You were dead in your sins when God called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And this call of God that saved you brought you into the body of Christ. And this call of God that saved you brought you into peace. Now, the peace that we're called into at salvation works at at least two levels. First, when God saved you, He brought you into a relationship of peace with Him. Okay, now that means that our natural position with God because of our sins, we are naturally the enemies of God. Okay, make sure you, that settles in your mind. You are not, no one stands on neutral ground with God. You either have peace with God through faith in Jesus, or you are at enmity with God. You don't stand in no man's land before God. You either have peace or you are at war. In fact, the way Paul says it in Romans 8 is that the natural position of our flesh, we are naturally hostile to God. That means we don't want God ruling over us. We don't want God telling us what to do. My natural stance is I don't want God being God in my life. I want to call the shots. I want to be boss. And God is not unfazed by that. So that Ezekiel says God is angry with the wicked every day. So our position before God because of our sin is we are naturally at war with God. But what Paul is saying here is that now through Jesus, or I should say it, now Jesus has one peace through the work that he did on the cross. Okay, so what's happening at the cross is all of the hostility that should pour out on me, all of the hostility from God that was aimed in my direction was poured out on Jesus instead. We just sang about it in that song, Jesus, Thank You. So on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he were me. He was treated as God's enemy so that now everyone who believes is embraced as a son or daughter. So he's, he faces the hostility and the war in my place so that through him I can have peace with God. So if your faith is in Jesus, you have peace with God. Permanent peace with God. That peace you have with God cannot be undone. This is Paul saying in Romans that, that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's one level. You have peace with God. But here's the other part of that. Th this peace with God is not just something that I have. And it's not just something that you have. It's something that we have. 
What I mean by that is that this peace with God is something that we now have in common. So the work that Jesus did on the cross, not only does it end the hostility between me and God, but it also is meant to end the hostility between me and you. So that all the old grudges, all the old divisions that once defined our relationships with each other, now melt away before the cross. Here's the way Paul says it in Ephesians. Listen to Ephesians 2 verses 14 and 15. He says of Jesus, For he himself is our peace, who has made both. The both here are Jews and Gentiles, the groups that were formerly divided. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Paul's saying the, the walls that once separated us, the ethnic walls, the class walls, the social walls, the racial walls, all of those walls come crashing down at the cross. This is why Paul said last week, the verses we looked at last week, he says, now, what matters for us now as Christians is Christ is all and Christ is in all. That, that's, that's the lens through which we view the whole world. Our relationship with Jesus has given us a new lens through which we see people. And so through Jesus, we have real peace with God and real, real established peace with each other. Okay, so now what? Okay, that's great. Christ has established peace at the cross. What does that peace mean for us now? Well, Paul says we're to let that peace rule in our hearts. Now normally when you see that word rule in the Bible, it's, it's kind of synonymous for reign, like a king reigns. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. In fact, this is the only time he uses this verb in the entire Bible. And it's not talking about ruling the way a king rules. It's talking about ruling the way an umpire rules. So maybe a good way to think about it, if you watched football yesterday, think of the officials on the field during the football game. They blow the whistle if a runner steps out of bounds. They throw a flag if somebody breaks a rule. Or think of the referee in a boxing match as the two guys are clinching and somebody throws a low blow and the referee separates them and says, keep your punches up. Or even maybe like an umpire in a baseball game who stands behind the plate and he calls, he calls balls and strikes. He makes clear what's in the strike zone and what's outside of the strike zone. That's, that's the word that Paul's using here. That we're to let God's peace rule the way an umpire rules is. Or maybe, maybe a good way to think of it would be, it's, it's God's peace established at the cross that has the whistle in my heart. So that if, if my attitude toward you begins to sour, if I begin to treat you harshly, it's God's spirit with God's peace that blows the whistle. I've stepped out of bounds. So, so we want everything in our lives together, every word we speak, every attitude that we have in our fellowship to be measured by, to be governed by the peace that God has won for us, that Christ has won for us at the cross. That's the idea. So when the peace of God, that peace won at the cross rules in my heart and it rules in your heart, We'll, we'll naturally have peace together. Here's the way Dick Lucas described it. He said, 
How could people who share with one another the great peacemaking work of Christ on the cross have hatred or contempt or bitterness toward each other? The body should be a realm of peace because it's made up of people who are under the rule of peace. When Christ rules in the heart, His peace will rule in the fellowship. We want peace to rule. And don't miss that last phrase in verse 15. It's not just a throwaway phrase. And be thankful. Listen, you and I, Christians, should be the most thankful people on the planet. We should be thankful for the peace that we now have with God. We should be thankful that we've been brought into a new family. We should be thankful that we're not on our own anymore. It is hard... It is hard for my heart to be filled with bitterness and division and for my heart to be filled with thankfulness at the same time. In fact, I would say not only is it hard, it is impossible. Thankful hearts will be peaceful hearts. So let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let the peace of God call the shots and be thankful. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Number two... Let the Word dwell. This is another one of those guiding principles in our life together. Let the Word dwell. Look at verse 16, the beginning of it anyway. He says, verse 16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now in one sense, that's connected to verse 15. Because peace rules where the Word dwells. And when he says, let the Word of Christ, it means the Word about Christ. It's all the teaching that centers on Jesus. So so most narrowly, the Word of Christ is the Gospel. It's the message of this Jesus, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and lived a sinless life and died an atoning death at the cross and then rose from the dead. That is the Word about Christ in a narrow sense. In a broad sense, the word about Christ is everything in the Bible. Because the whole Bible is the message of Jesus, right? The Old Testament is all pointing forward to Jesus. And then the New Testament is helping us understand the life and ministry of Jesus. And Paul says what we want is we want that word about Christ to dwell among us. That word dwell means to to take up residence or, or to be at home. We want the word to be at home, and he even adds the word richly. That means abundantly. So so we want the word to take up residence in every room of our lives. We we want the word to to fill every nook and cranny of our lives so that, that everything we do, every conversation we have, is being shaped by the word. But notice again, this, he's, this command he's given isn't just what we want individually. What he's talking about here especially is what we're looking for corporately. That's why he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among us. So he's saying this is what we want our life together as the family of God to be marked by. We, we want the word to pervade. We want the Word of God to permeate every area of our life together as the family of God. So that it's, it's talked about and it's preached and it's heard and it's lived and it's loved. 
So we want, we want the Word of God to drip from every relationship and every corner of our church life like honey drips from every part of a honeycomb. We want it to fill everything that we do. So how does that happen? That should be the question. We want the Word to dwell richly among us as a family. How do we get there? Look at the next phrase. He says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now those two words, teach and admonish, he used those, those same two words at the end of chapter 1, describing what a faithful Christian ministry looks like. Okay, so a faithful Christian ministry, a faithful, faithful pastor is called to teach. That means give instruction and admonish. That means exhort and warn. But what Paul's reminding us of now is that teaching and admonishing isn't just the work of the pastor. Teaching and admonishing is the work of the body. It's not just what I'm supposed to do. It's what we're supposed to do. Every believer is called to this work of teaching and admonishing. And don't get the idea that this mutual teaching and admonishing is something that has to happen or should always happen within the structures of the church. Like we're going to give you three ways you can teach and admonish. You can do it here, you can do it in Sunday school, and then you're out of options. Now this teaching and admonishing one another, it's supposed to fill everything about our lives together. So when you're giving counsel to someone, when you're having a conversation with your wife at home, when you're discipling your kids, when you're making phone calls, when you're sending texts to other believers during the week, it's supposed to be filled with this teaching and admonishing one another. This is the part of the Great Commission that often gets left out, right? The Great Commission is that, that as we go, we're making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then what? Teaching them to observe all the things that Christ commanded. We teach all of us all the time. That this is the ministry that God has called us to as His family. We teach one another. Okay, so he says we teach and admonish. And by the way, this is the key way that the Word, one of the key ways, the Word dwells in us richly. It dwells in our marriages, by the way we talk. It dwells in a group of ladies having a Bible study or a group of men reading a book together. We're constantly teaching and admonishing, and that's how the Word dwells richly among us. Okay, but, but all this talk about the Word... Isn't that, what about the ministry of the Spirit? I mean, y'all focus so much on the Word, you don't give any room for the Spirit. That's, that's what you'll hear folks say sometimes is, y'all worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. You're elbowing out the Holy Spirit in all of this. But I want to show you an important parallel that will help you understand what it means to know the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I've mentioned to you before that, that Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians at around the same time. Okay, so these two letters are sent out, maybe even sent out together. And so if you read Colossians and Ephesians, a lot of these letters are parallel. Paul says the exact same things, hits on a lot of the same topics. And this section that we're reading this morning is one of those parallels. Now before we go to Ephesians, we're going to turn in just a second to Ephesians 5. But notice the flow in Colossians 3. 
So Paul starts it all in verse 16 by saying, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, so what's the result? What's the effects of the word dwelling in us richly? Well, we'll teach and admonish in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when the word dwells richly, we sing. What else? Well, the end of verse 17, we'll give thanks. So when the word dwells richly, we'll give thanks. And then what does he begin talking about in verse 18? He gives instructions to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then he gives instructions to husbands. And he gives instructions to parents. And he gives instructions to children. And he gives instructions to bond servants. In other words, the heading is, let the word dwell richly. The results of the word dwelling richly are we sing. And we're thankful. And we have well-ordered family lives. Okay, do you have that pattern in your mind? Okay, flip over to Ephesians 5 now. I want you to see the parallel. Ephesians 5. Look at verse 18. Ephesians 5, 18 says. Ephesians 5, 18 and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now pause for a minute. So the heading is, be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like when we're filled with the Spirit? What are the effects of being filled with the Spirit? Well, here are the effects. The next verse. We speak to one another in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs. Where have we seen that before? The exact same language as Colossians 3. What else? Verse 20, when we're filled with the Spirit, we give thanks. What else? Verse 22, he gives instruction to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then he gives instruction to husbands to love their wives. And he gives instructions to parents. And he gives instructions to children. And then he gives instructions to bond servants. In other words, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 follow the exact same outline. He says the exact same thing. In both cases, the effects are we sing and we're thankful and our home lives look a certain way and our work lives look a certain way. The only difference is Colossians 3 begins, let the word dwell in you richly. Ephesians 5 begins, be filled with the Spirit. So if the effects of those two things are the exact same, guess what that tells us? That those two opening lines are synonymous. In other words, the way we're filled with the Spirit is by letting the Word dwell in us richly. Does that make sense? The, the, the Spirit's influence over my life grows as the Word's influence in my life grows. As I yield to the Word, I am filled with the Spirit. So you've got to take that to heart because don't fall for the silly way that people talk sometimes. Well, well they'll say things like, well, that church is Word-focused. We're Spirit-focused. No. You, they go together. The way that we're filled with the Spirit is by being filled with the Word. The more filled we are with the Word, the more power, the more influence we have of the Spirit. So Paul says, 
Let the Word dwell in you richly. One more thing. Look at verse 6. Not one more thing. I'll probably say three or four more things on this verse. But notice one of the ways that we teach and admonish one another. We teach and admonish, again in verse, let me get back to Colossians 3. We teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing. Now stop there for a minute. So, so one of the ways the Word dwells in us richly, one of the ways we teach and admonish is through singing together. Now you've got to think about what that means. That means that our music ministry in the church is part of the teaching ministry of the church. It's not just a feeling ministry. It's a teaching ministry. Now that's not to say that there shouldn't be feeling in our song. There should be, there must be, because singing is combining together wonderful truths about God with deep affection. So there should be feeling. But the main goal of music is not to bring about a certain emotional state. The main goal of music is it's one of the means God has given us to help the Word dwell in us richly. So if you have the idea that the second part of the service is for the mind, that's when we think. And the first part of the service, that's for our hearts. That's for our emotions. That's for our feelings. You've completely missed it. Some, some of the most important teaching that goes on in our corporate worship is what happens in the first part of the service. When, when we sing songs, we are taking deep truths about God and what He's done for us, and we're trying to anchor those truths into our hearts by combining those truths to music. And that's why the content of the songs that we sing matters so much. If you get this, it'll, it'll go a long way in helping you understand what our music ministry is geared toward here as a church. Because you realize, like we do, music is powerful. Okay, I, I, I have the understanding that when you guys leave here today, on your way home, you probably won't be able to recite a single paragraph from my sermon. But you'll probably be able to recite entire verses from the songs that we sing. Songs stick. So we want to make sure that what we're sticking in your life are things that are rich and deep with wonderful truths about who God is. If all we do in a song service is give you a bunch of shallow drivel, we won't help the Word dwell in you richly. In fact, a steady diet of shallow music will produce shallow Christians. So I would encourage you in the songs we sing to listen beyond the sound of a song. If you've been in church long enough, you know that, that if you put the right music to a song, you can make nonsense sound profound. You put the right music to a song, you can whip people into emotional frenzies without really saying anything at all. But our music ministry is supposed to be part of our teaching ministry. So the main criteria in the songs we sing is, is it biblically rich? Are we giving you important truths about God and the gospel through our songs? Now again, that doesn't mean the music attached to the song is unimportant. It just means the music attached to the song isn't most important. 
Uh, a good rule of thumb would be to get in the habit, if there's a song you really like, of getting that song, don't play the music, and just pull up the lyrics to the song. And see what the song says lyrically. And let me say one other thing. And since this is part of the word dwelling in us, and, and since our music ministry is part of the teaching ministry of the church, it also means that, that we want to be careful about the sources that we sing songs from. So you recognize that uh, the top 20 billboard list of Christian music, um, a huge portion of that comes from sources that are very wonky theologically. Off the rails, some of them theologically. And so I'll, I'll give you just one example. So a, a Bethel Music presents a, or puts out a huge volume of music, lots of which makes it onto the radio. Well, Bethel Music is, Bethel Ministries has terrible theology. And so we don't, we don't sing corporately songs from Bethel Music because our fear is that we would sing a song in corporate worship, you would like it, go home, Google it, end up at Bethel's website and think that everything they have, all of their resources must be good because we sing their music. So uh, I'm getting off the rails here a little bit, but it's important in understanding music. There might be songs you hear on the radio that you love, and they're perfectly fine for private worship. But we don't sing them in corporate worship because we recognize corporate singing as one of the channels of our teaching ministry together. And also notice that he says that we're singing don't miss this phrase in verse 16. We're teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. That means one of the ways we minister to each other in the body is through our congregational singing. There, there is nothing like, there's nothing like being with God's people and hearing the voices of the body being raised together, declaring some great truth about God or expressing faith in God. I need to hear that from you. And you need to hear that from me. One of the ways God has called us to mutual ministry in the church is through our singing. So our goal in our corporate singing isn't to turn it into a mini-concert where you leave blown away with what happens on stage. The goal of everything that happens on stage is to facilitate congregational singing. It's not about the instruments up here or the guys. And by the way, this is what you should appreciate deeply about the guys who lead us, Justin and Stephen, do a fantastic job of taking this aspect of our singing very seriously. What we sing matters, and the main thing going on in our congregational singing is not how great the leaders sound or how fabulous the instruments sound. It's what you sound like. What matters in corporate worship, corporate singing, is you. So sing. Children, boys and girls, sing. Ladies, sing. Men, men, listen to me, men. Sing. God has called us to sing. When you don't sing, not only are you dishonoring God, you are doing a disservice to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a church family. Listen, when we sing songs, when we sing, whatever my God ordains is right, 
Here shall my stand be taken, though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. When you sing that, not only are you praising God for His faithfulness, you're reminding me of God's faithfulness. And I need to hear that. We minister to one another through our singing together. If you're a Christian, singing in corporate worship is not optional. Thankfully, God didn't say sing well together to one another. He just said sing. So church, sing. It's one of the ways we worship God and it's one of the ways we edify one another. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And by the way, that psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you can spend a lot of time talking about the differences in those three. Um, I, I think the main point is there's, there's variety in what we sing. There's, you, can, you can just focus in on one of those. You could just focus in on the psalms and look at the variety of the psalms. There are psalms that are jubilant and rejoicing and there are psalms that are uh, more, more pensive and thoughtful and psalms of lament and there are short, simple psalms. In our Bible reading this week, we were in Psalm 117, which is the shortest of all the psalms. And here over the next week, we're going to be in Psalm 119, which is the longest of all the psalms. Some of the psalms are short and simple. Some of the long, psalms are long and, and profound. We, we sing a variety. We don't limit it to any one kind of song. We can, we, can, we can worship God through simple songs. We can sing Jesus Loves Me and worship God. And we can worship God through complex songs. We can worship God through Handel's Messiah. We can worship God through songs that were written 500 years ago. And we can worship God through songs that were written five months ago. But here's the great thing about God. Our God is so great, we will never run out of wonderful, true things to say about Him. So people will be writing new songs about God to the end of the age. And finally, Paul says, we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And I want to emphasize that too. Because it's true to say there is a horizontal element to our singing. We're singing as one of the ways we serve one another. We're singing as one of the ways we help the Word dwell richly in each other. But we also sing to the Lord. In fact, it's the fact that we sing to the Lord. That's what makes it worship. We sing to the Lord. That makes it worship. We sing to one another. That's what makes it corporate. It's corporate worship. And what's the attitude of our hearts during our singing? He says we sing with grace in our hearts. It's really a word for gratitude. Some of your translations will even word it. We sing with thanksgiving in our hearts. We sing because our hearts are bubbling over with thankfulness to God. Even when we, even when we come to worship with heavy hearts... Man, there have been times over the years when I've come to a worship service with a very heavy heart over something going on in my family or, or some sin issue in my own life that I'm grieved over or something going on in our church family where my heart is heavy, heavy, heavy. But the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians is we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. In other words, I don't have to feel upbeat to sing to God. I can be heavy-hearted, I can be grieving, yet when we begin to declare these wonderful truths about God and who He is and what He's done through tears of grief, I can sing songs of worship to God. 
So we sing to the Lord with grace or gratitude in our hearts. The way Kent Hughes described it is he said it's like our, our lives are like a bucket. And, and when your life, when my life is filled to the brim with God's word and with gratitude, it will naturally spill over into song. And I think that's absolutely right. The point he's making is uh, a word-saturated life will be a singing life. A word-saturated life will be a singing life. A, a heart that is filled to the brim with God's word and filled up with gratitude toward God can't help but spill over in song. So we let the word dwell in us richly. Here's the third thing. Number three, let Christ be honored. Man, this, this should be the heartbeat. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, verse 17 is it's written as a summary of the paragraph above. So starting up in verse 12, Paul's been describing what our life together should look like as Christians. How we're supposed to treat one another. What's supposed to dominate our lives together. Well now he sums it all up with this last verse. Here's what sums up our life together as Christians. Whatever you do in word or deed. Whatever you do in word means every conversation you have. Every lesson you teach, every sermon that's delivered, every phone call you make, every text that's sent out, every tweet, every Facebook post, whatever you do in word or in deed, that's every decision, every behavior, every action, we want it all to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And being done in the name of the Lord Jesus means we want it all done to honor the Lord Jesus it means we're doing it all, realizing that we're doing it as representatives of the Lord Jesus. And this ties back into what Paul said earlier. Listen, church, I died with Christ and I've been raised with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not just a couple parts of me died and were raised with Christ. It's not just my Sundays that died and were raised with Christ. All of me. My whole life has died and been raised new with Christ, which means... The goal for all of my life now, as I want every area, every word, every conversation to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so I guess I would sum it up by saying this. What Paul's saying in verse 17 is all of life is now worship. Everything we do now, we do in a way that honors the Lord. Every conversation we have, every word of encouragement you give to somebody at church, every prayer you pray, everything you do at work, every conversation you have at work, we're doing it all as a way of honoring the Lord. We do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that last phrase, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Have you noticed how many times that's come up in just these three verses? He keeps going back to giving thanks. That, that really seems to be one of the goals in this letter because what's happened is these false teachers have come into Colossae and they're trying to make these Christians feel like they're lacking something. They're trying to make these Christians in Colossae feel discontented, like they need something more. And Paul knows that the remedy to that is to help them see the fullness of what they have in Jesus. If we can come to grips with what God has done for us in Jesus and what we have in Jesus, our lives will overflow in thanksgiving, thankfulness. 
So, so here's what we're after. We want God's peace to rule here. We want God's peace to call the shots in our relationships with each other. We want the word to richly dwell here. And that means we all have a role in that. We all teach and admonish. We all in our singing help the word dwell. And we want Christ to be honored here. In every word, in every conversation, in every lesson, in every attitude, we want Christ magnified. Those are the governing principles of our life together. So we're going to bow together for a word of prayer.